Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Well, you can have a seat. Uh, and good morning. I have been gone for a while. My name is Jacob. I'm our teaching director here at uh, Anderson College. Uh, and I've been out for a few weeks because I've been a little bit occupied taking care of this guy right here. Oh, no. <laughs> He's gone. Never mind. Um, we will... I will have a photo because I'm a proud father of my second child. So uh, I already have a daughter at home. She's two. We just had a son uh, named for both mine and Susan's fathers. His name is Lawrence Wayne Smith, and he looks, he looks like it. You know, that's just uh, goes by Lawrence or a lawman or Lil Wayne. Uh, that is probably uh, really any of those will work. Uh, and I know that at this moment, while he is sweet and cuddly and just kind of sleepy, occasionally, this was like the one time he slept in the last two weeks, uh, but he is just so wonderful and so just cherishable. You can just cuddle him up. And I mean, I love him so much. And, and I know that the day is coming though, because I've, I've already experienced a little bit of fatherhood. And so I know that the day is coming in my future where he's not gonna just be quiet and cuddly and sleepy. I know that the day is coming where he's actually going to interact with me. He's actually gonna talk to me. He's actually going to begin speaking to me a lot like these kids. What clothes are you washing? Granddaddy's. And? Grandma's. That's right. You helping them out? I like that one. <laughs> this is a bad secret. What? Give me your ear. What? I peed in my pants. Don't tell anyone. Okay. I want you to change. What's wrong? That doesn't look good. What doesn't look good? Sweater. I personally think I look just fine. I don't know what you all think. No, Daddy. There's the head and the body. Where is that at? In my tummy. Right now? Yeah. What? Yeah. I knew it because you were fat. <laughs> Did you have a nap today? I did! Man, brutal honesty. It's something that kids are good at. They know how to just sort of tell it like it is, let you know exactly what's going on in the world. Man, brutal honesty is something that honestly, a lot of us, we need it, right? It helps us in many ways. It helps us better understand other people. Like they tell us, I peed in my pants. Okay, that's a good thing to know moving forward. It helps us understand ourselves. We find out, oh, hey, my sweater's really ugly. Or, oh, hey, I've been putting on a little bit of baby weight. Excuse me, you know, that's good to know. But a lot of times, I mean, the most beneficial thing about brutal honesty is that it will tell us, it will point us to the source of our current struggle. Some of us sometimes need to hear, you need a nap, right? Like we need to hear that sometimes. Some of us right here, actually probably today, you, your roommate needs to walk into your room and say, you need a nap and to eat like an apple because you're crazy right now. Like you need to calm down. Many times that honesty though is hard to hear, right? A lot of times the truth is, is that when we hear about the source of our struggle, man, it's, it's not fun 
It's not a fun thing to, to hear told to us, to have pointed out, because maybe we're struggling in a class, and yet if we were really gonna look at the source of that struggle, we'd find out it's because we're not actually putting in the proper work. And that's hard to hear. That's hard to accept. Some, some of us are maybe struggling in relationships. Maybe we're struggling to find romance, and yet the source of that struggle might actually be that we have issues with immaturity or selfishness. And that's hard to hear. Right? That's hard to have pointed out. Some of us maybe are struggling to, to find current contentment in our lives, or we're struggling to find direction for our futures but the source of that struggle might actually be that we have these core expectations that are wrong, that are misplaced or unreasonable. Maybe some of us are struggling right now to really see God as real and, and trustworthy or to see ourselves as loved and forgiven. But the reality is that, I mean, the source of that struggle so many times is that we actually have a, a core, a central, uh, a nagging, deep-seated disbelief or doubt in who Jesus of Nazareth really was and is and always will be. The source of our struggles are sometimes hard to find, but when we find them, man, what it does is it lets us begin to think about, well, what's the right solution? Where do I run? What's the answer to this problem? See, the world, it calls Jesus of Nazareth a, a good man or a wise teacher or maybe even a powerful prophet. But the word of God calls Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, the Christos, literally meaning the chosen one, the anointed one. That's what scripture calls Jesus Christ. And when we look in scripture, we see that he's the righteous redeemer, man. He's the living Lord. He's the Messiah who moved into creation to bring the dead to life. That's what we see in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't just see a man, we see a God who put on flesh. We don't see some sort of unknowable entity or distant divinity. We see a God who knows us intimately, a God who walked in our world to feel and empathize with our broken state of being. And as we look at a record of his life in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark, as we look at this account of what he said and what he did. And what we find, what we see is a king who cares for his people. We see a savior, who, a savior who serves the people he's come to save. We see the chosen one, the Christ, the Christos, who chooses us to join him in life beyond the grave. I mean, that's what we see in the book of Mark. That's what we're gonna be looking at over the next few weeks. And this morning, specifically, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see Jesus of Nazareth beginning his ministry with brutal but loving honesty. We're gonna see him take a crowd of people and point them to the source of, of their struggle. But he's not just gonna let them sit there and think about it. He's then gonna prove himself to be the perfect solution to where they're at, to the problem and the greatest need that they're facing. Right, in Mark chapter two, we see Jesus of Nazareth beginning his ministry, right? He's in the very early stages of it. His name is starting to kind of go out. Uh, some people saw him be baptized by John the Baptist, a guy who was kind of building notoriety. He was saying, hey, the Lamb of God, the chosen one is coming, the Christ, the Messiah, he's on his way. And when G John the Baptist sees Jesus of Nazareth, he says, this is the guy. 
This is him. And sure enough, as Jesus is baptized, the God of the universe, the God, the Father, shines a light down upon him. He sends the Spirit like a dove upon him. He says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He says, this is the one who's been promised to you. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And so the word starts to spread in Mark chapter two, verse one, where after some days, he, Jesus, he returned to Capernaum and the news was spreading that he was at home. So many gathered that there was no longer any room, not even by the door, and he preached the word to them. Again, so the word is beginning to spread. He's not this national figure yet. He's not this historical international figure that he is not, not yet. Instead, he's sort of building his name. He's building momentum. In other words, he's basically kind of Chris Pratt, like during Parks and Rec, right? Maybe a few seasons in where people are like, yeah, I kind of like that guy. He's funny. Look at that. Look at that lovable chum. But kind of before like Guardians of the Galaxy, right? When he gets like a cool haircut and buff. But that's, that's where we're at, right? We're kind of in that in-between phase where Jesus is beginning to build a name for himself and it's enough to pack out a house, which at that time, those houses, they're they're small, right? There's probably one room or maybe two rooms and it fits about maybe 50 people if they're just jam-packed standing in there. So there's at least a crowd of 50 people standing in this house trying to hear from him and he's preaching. And this is a problem because it's so packed out, people can't get in. And so when we see in verse three that there's a group of people, there's some new people that are trying to bring to him a paralytic, right? Four guys are carrying this paralytic. They're trying to get to Christ, but... They're not able to bring him in. Why? Because of that crowd. And so they removed the roof above Jesus. And then after tearing it out, they lowered the stretcher and the paralytic was lying on. So these guys, they're bringing their friend, this paralyzed friend of theirs. They're trying to bring him in. They see, well, we can't get in through the door. And so what would happen is in that time, you'd spend a lot of time on your roof, right? It's hot. You want to go up where there was breeze. So you'd build a little stairway up to your flat roof. And so they go up to that roof. And the roof is really just made of like dried mud and, and branches. So they begin to dig in it. And as they're kind of tearing away at it and gophering their way through this bridge, and as the dirt starts to kind of fall down on the people, suddenly they look up and they say, oh my gosh, there's a person. And so they lower the guy through. They bring him to, to Jesus of Nazareth, this one that they've been hearing about, that they know is maybe the, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who's been performing signs and miracles and wonders. They say, wow, we got to go see this person. We got to bring our friend because we think there's hope for him. We think there's hope that he might be healed of his current suffering. And they bring him in front of Jesus. And in the midst of this disruptive, crazy moment where people crash through the roof, can you imagine if someone just crashed through the roof right now? That'd be nuts. It'd be like perfect. But it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. Uh, but that would be awesome. They crash through the roof. Jesus is looking at this guy. He looks at him and he says, hey, here's what I'm gonna do for you. He says, I'm gonna forgive your sins. He is so moved when he looks at these men, when he looks at what they've done, he says, I'm gonna forgive your sins. And it's incredible because in that moment when he's talking about this forgiveness, man, he's, he's marveled at their faith. He's marveled at, it's, it's a plural. When he sees the faith of, these, of this team of men, it's not just the faith of the paralyzed man, it's the faith of him and his friends. He sees their faith and he's amazed. He says, man, I, I'm gonna forgive your sins. And he's not just dismissing the guy's disease. He's not, he's not dismissing the guy's issues and, and the brokenness of his body. He, he'll go on to heal it. 
But Jesus Christ is taking a moment to recognize, man, there's a faith that is present here that I'm going to honor, and I'm going to honor it with my ultimate purpose, which is to reconcile you with God when I see that faith. And man, that's a faith that not only moves Christ to forgive, but it's a faith that should move us to want what they've got, right? When, when we look at this scene, when we look at these friends carrying their, carrying their buddy through a roof, they're digging it, man, that should be inspiring to us. The reality is that we are a people who are designed for community. We are designed to, to live in the midst of other people. And we need a community. We want a community. We should be longing for a community that is committed to each other. Right? Strong and meaningful friendships, they take time and compatibility for sure. But above anything else, it takes commitment, a decision, a choice that, hey, I'm gonna stick things out with you, even though we're hitting some conflict right now, or even though life is bringing some stuff that could be a distraction, or even though I'm dating a girl now, so do I really need friends? Like, even though there's these things happening, I'm gonna be committed to spending time and energy with you. That's what strong and meaningful and lasting friendships require. And we know this, right? That's why flows work. I remember when I was coming in as a freshman, I had all these friends from Impact and, and Fish Camp, and, and I remember we had this kind of little group of friends, and, and there was this one girl, Emily, that was in our group that was really fun, but after a few months into the semester, she just kind of stopped showing up. She stopped showing up to, we'd have like three-hour lunches in the commons, and we'd do, I don't, what did we do? Not go to class, but you know, because like, why would you? But we would just hang out and she wasn't spending all this enormous amounts of time with us. And I was confused by it. I began to ask, I was like, hey, do you guys know like where Emily's been? Like what, what's been up with her? And, and I was just met with just sort of, she's gone, Jacob. She's gone. I said, I don't, I don't get it, you guys. Like wh- where'd she go? Like Adam's not that big, right? Like she's probably still around. I said, Jacob, shh. She's a fish aid now. She's a fish aid. And that's when I learned, if you're in a flow, that's just who you are for at least a year. And, you know, that's great. And I have lots of great friends that are in flows and other organizations. It's not just flows. It's, it's things for even non-freshmen. There's, there's all sorts of organizations and things to be a part of that are good. And what they know, what they do, what they practice is commitment to one another. And it's really cool. It's really great to see that when it works to see when people are just forced to commit to each other, when they join a flow and they're told, hey, you guys have like four mandatory meetings a week and also we have a dance every Saturday. Like if you are told that, if you're forced to just live with these people constantly, you're like, okay, I guess we're gonna like be friends. And it just, it works because you're committed to one another. When we look at these men that are bringing their friend before Jesus of Nazareth to have him, to see him be healed, man, this is an incredible, inspiring moment. And we need to recognize that as believers, as followers of Christ, we need community that's not only committed to each other. We need a community that is also committed to Christ, to Jesus. If we want to be followers of Jesus, we need to be surrounded by other followers of Jesus. Because the tragedy is that I have sat down with so many of you and I've heard so many wonderful intentions of, of wanting to follow Christ, of wanting to live in a certain way or go in a certain direction or, or believe certain things or hold fast to certain truths. And yet I have seen so many of you create these grand, wonderful intentions that eventually just sort of dissipate and die and are lost 
because you're isolated. You might be surrounded by people, but you're isolated in your faith. You don't have other people that are following the same God that you follow. And if you are lacking that community, those intentions, they're just going to go away. So many great intentions are just lost in isolation. And we see this. It's, it's not just with our faith. It's with just our life. This is the spring semester. I know for a fact that everyone showed up at their dorm or apartment or house, and there was some roommate, or you were the roommate, who said, this is the one. This is the semester where we're going to be clean. And I've got Windex and paper towels, and I got a candle that smells pretty good. And we're going to make this thing happen. And maybe this is a roommate that showed up and said, this is the semester where I'm going to cook. I'm not going to eat Lane's breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. By golly, I'm going to cook broccoli every day. And we see these intentions show up at the beginning of a spring semester, and it lasts for like a week, right? The wreck was so full for like a week in January until everyone was like, no, this is terrible. I see the truth now of the world. Good for you. But we see, man, where these intentions come up. And unless we have people alongside of us walking with us, it's just going to remain an intention. It's not going to see reality. You might think, I'm going to work out. You're going to think, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is a semester. I'm going to wake up at 7.30 every morning. I'm going to read for five hours and study for 12. And then I'm going to just go to sleep because that's the day. Like I'm going to do all these wonderful things. But if you don't have people alongside of you, you're just going to be sitting in your bed at like noon. And you're going to be like, oh, wait class. Like, and that's going to be you. It is. Because if in isolation, your intentions, man, they don't carry weight. So if some of us are feeling that we're struggling to stay focused on Christ, we're struggling to follow the Lord and what he's laid out for us, man, what you need, the source of that struggle so many times is that you are lacking community. The solution for that struggle is that you would find or form a community that is focused on Jesus, that's focused on the God that you are trying to follow. And I'll tell you, it's an incredible opportunity that we've been given to intercede on the behalf of others. When we see this community in Mark 2, it's something inspiring because, man, what, what, what a beautiful plan of God that he in, in and of himself is sufficient and, and wonderful and powerful. And, and God, didn't, he doesn't have to use us in the lives of others. And yet he does. And, and yet he will put on the heart of someone at, at studying at Evan's library with Arsh to invite him to come to church with him. And God will use that invitation, not just the experience on the stage, not the word, it wasn't the words on the stage, it was the invitation to be a part of a community that followed God, that, that began to change his heart. What a beautiful opportunity we have to carry our friends that are suffering and hurting and dying, to bring him to life. And we need to be a part of that type of community. We need to find it or we need to form it. Right? We have opportunities right here, right now. Our leader apps are going up today where we want to train and equip you. We want to empower you to be a leader of men and women to be a leader among your peers, someone who's going to form a community that not only is committed to each other, but is also committed to Jesus Christ. We want that for you because it's what's best. Man, that's where joy and satisfaction is found in serving the God who has saved us. 
Jesus says, man, I, I, I love seeing this faith and I'm gonna point you to my ultimate purpose, right? Again, he's not dismissing the guy's sickness. He's gonna heal him in just a minute. But he's taking this moment, he's taking this disruptive moment where all eyes are forward and everyone's like, whoa, what's gonna happen? And he says, hey, listen up. This is why I'm here. This is my ultimate purpose. This is your ultimate need. Not that you'd be able to walk, but that you would be made alive spiritually, that you would be united and reconciled with the God who made you. This man's showing up and he's thinking, man, if I could just walk, oh, I'll be good. If I could just use my legs, if I could just have a healthy body, oh, I'll be good, I'll be set. But Jesus Christ is looking at me and says, no, that, that, that's not your deepest need. That's not your greatest problem. So many of us go to the Lord and we say, oh man, if I could just make that grade or if I could just land that internship or get that job or if I could just make that score on that LSAT, if I could just get that date with that guy or that girl, if I could just gain that position in that organization, if I could just be healed of the sickness that I have or my family member would be healed of that sickness that they have or this relationship would be restored, if I could just have one of these things or a few of these things, I'll be okay. And Jesus Christ is looking at you and he's saying, no, no. That's not your greatest need. That's not your deepest problem. Again, he's not dismissing the horrors that sin has brought into your life. And he wants to move towards them. He wants to bring healing and restoration where possible. But he says, that's not the ultimate need. He says, the source of all of this is that you have been separated from the God who made you. You've been separated from the God who loves you. I'm not dismissing the struggle, but I'm pointing you to the source, to the sin that has separated you from God. He says, and that's why I'm here. That's our gospel, that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again, not so that people might be healed of their sickness, not so that cancer would go away, not so that divorce would just stop occurring. He didn't come and live and die and rise again for those things to happen. He came and lived and died and rose again so that we might be united with the God who loves us and made us, so that we might be adopted out of sin and death and into life, that we might be called sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. That was his ultimate purpose. Now what's beautiful is that because of that salvation, because of that purpose, we will one day look to a moment, we will look to a day where sin and suffering and death and disease and cancer and divorce and those horrific things are gone. We're looking to that day. And man, I pray that it's soon. I hope you pray for that day every single day that you have in this world. But Jesus Christ says, man, that's not the ultimate purpose. All of those things pale in comparison to your need to be reconciled to the God who made you, who loves you. So I'm gonna fix that. I'm the solution to that problem. I'm gonna forgive that sin. And what's so tragic is that in this crowd of people watching this incredible event, watching this incredible, unprecedented miracle occur, they look at it and they dismiss it. They doubt it. They disbelieve it. Some of the experts in the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, they were sitting there and they were turning these things over in their minds and they began thinking, man, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming, right? He's speaking against God. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're thinking, there's no way that this man has this authority. There's no way that this man is who he says he is. There's no way that he's doing what he says he's doing. They are essentially doubting who Jesus is and what Jesus does. They say, man, there's there's no way this is happening. And so what we see occur later on is they just go back to their practices and their methods that they had secured for themselves. They go back to the solutions that they thought they already had lined up. They say, you know what, I've got these laws, I've kind of, I've added to the Mosaic law and I've got this great list of rules and regulations and if I just follow those things, I'll be great. And if I just perform these certain sacrifices, if I do this certain stuff, if I walk through these certain steps, that's what's gonna save me. That's the solution to my problem. And one day God's gonna send a Messiah who's gonna vanquish the Roman Empire. He's gonna deliver us into this beautiful kingdom. So they say, I mean, you don't look like the person I want you to be. You're not doing what I want you to do. And so they reject Jesus Christ. They reject Jesus of Nazareth. They reject him as the Christ. They say that that's not true. And that's the official position of the nation of Israel to this day. And Jesus looks at these people, and when he realizes in his spirit that they are contemplating these things, he says to them, I mean, why are you thinking this in your hearts? says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your stretcher, and walk? Jesus is telling them, look, you're looking for a sign. You're looking for a wonder. You're looking for a healing. He says, but the reality is that that's, that's easier than it is to forgive sins, right? God has empowered men and women throughout time to heal, even to raise people from the dead. Elijah, the, prophet, the great prophet, he rose people from the dead. God has given that ability, that power to people before, but no one, no one but God alone has the authority to forgive sin. Jesus is looking at these leaders. He says, you guys are looking for the wrong solution. He says, you're looking for for a healing? He says, man, that's not the big point. That's not the big deal. That's not the ultimate need. He says, you've misdiagnosed your illness, which brings us to the cat piano. In German... The cat piano is loosely translated as the Katzenklaver. <laughs> and the Katzenklaver is an actual invention that was created in the 18th century by a German physician named Johann Christian Reil. And when he was thinking through this idea, he was thinking through this device, uh, he wrote that the Katzenklaver was going to shake mental patients who had lost the ability to focus. It was going to bring them back to reality. Okay, so he says, if I could create this katzenklaver, it's going to bring people back and it's going to heal them of their mental maladies, their mental problems. But the thing is that his katzenklaver, it didn't look like this. This is beautiful. This is like some little kitten named like Mr. Buttercup Bottom is like sitting on the, that's awesome, right? That's great. And that's what we think of when we think cat piano. But Mr. Uh, Johan had a very different idea. His katzenklaver looked more uh, like this, where essentially uh, he lined up, there it is, he lined up cats in these baskets and he arranged them according to the pitch of their uh, screams, okay? So he would kind of know, he'd like squeeze them or something, find out if they, ah, and he'd be like, okay, you're like a C sharp. And so he'd kind of put them along this line And what you don't see is that their tails are straightened out behind them and secured, and there's little hammers underneath the keys of that piano that are going to fall down and whack those tails whenever the person is playing. 
And Johann tells us, he explains, this is how it works. He says, the patient is placed so that they are sitting in direct view of the cat's expressions. And when the psychiatrist plays on the instrument, it will help them. It brings them back to reality, right? So he would take these sick people, these mentally ill people, and they would sit them in front of this piano. This was the idea. I don't know if you have, there's no proof that he ever did it. But he, the idea was he was going to sit them in front of, he would, they were going to look right at the cats, right in the eye. And then the psychiatrist would come in and just start, and the cats would just start, ah! And so the person is just, oh, I'm good now. Yeah, okay. I had this general anxiety. It's gone. Like, I'm, I feel great. That was the idea. Johann Christian Ryle and the Kotzen Claver was supposed to be the solution. And that is wrong, okay? In case some of you are like, how did I not know? Like, it's wrong. It doesn't work. That's the problem. They have misdiagnosed the illness. This is not the right solution. The Pharisees and scribes, the religious rulers of that day, man, they had the wrong idea about what was going on in their lives. They had the wrong solutions lined up. Jesus is looking at them and he's telling them, you're you're not just hurting. He says, you are dead. Your deepest problem is not suffering. It's separation. He says, your deepest need is not more rules and more regulations and more religious steps to follow. It's a relationship between yourself and the God who made you. That's the heart of the law. That's what the leaders of that time missed. That's what Paul and the writer of Hebrews, that's what they point us back to. They say, I mean, the law was never the way to secure salvation. You never were saved by sacrificing an animal. That was merely an outward display of an inward faith. It was the motivation behind those steps, behind those rituals. That's what God saw. God looked at the heart. He didn't look at the animal dying on the altar. He looked at the heart of the man or the woman performing that sacrifice. We've always been saved by faith. It's always been about a relationship. God says, that's the solution. Jesus of Nazareth says, that's why I'm here. I'm the Christ. I'm the chosen one. And I'm choosing to bring you with me into a new life, into a new resurrection, into an eternal glory that surpasses this broken, sinful world. But the religious rulers, the scribes of that day, they look and they say, no, we're good. (laughs) What's sad is that we look at Jesus, even as believers, as people who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and let me just say, that is a salvation that is secure, that, that is fixed and firm. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing's gonna eradicate or destroy that relationship, but that relationship can become strained. It can become marred. It can become a little bit more murky. It does never eradicate it, but it can become strained. And so many times we find ourselves secure in this relationship and yet straining against it where we say, you know what? I think if I can just pray these things or do these things or think these things or live out this certain way or give this certain amount of money or give of my time or do, serve in these certain organizations, if I could just do this stuff, that's what's gonna allow God to better accept me or bless me or approve of me or love me or forgive me. And God's looking at us and he's saying, no. You're missing it. You're misdiagnosing your illness. You're turning to a katzen claver when you should be looking to the completed work of Jesus Christ. 
If we think for a moment that there is any sort of work we can do, anything that we can do to merit or earn the grace of God, we are, we are missed the point. And I do it. We all do it at times. It doesn't disqualify us, but man, it's gonna set up a little barrier that, that we're gonna have to just deal with. It's a new constraint that we have to pray through and, and think through and talk through. And thankfully, God is good and he's forgiving and he's gracious and he knows that we're gonna make those mistakes but he wants us to avoid him as best we can. And he sent his spirit to do just that, to empower us to move past those obstacles, move past those inclinations, that old self, those sinful desires, those prideful thoughts. And Jesus says, I'm here to make that happen, to create that relationship, to reconcile you with the God that made you. And you're looking for this sign. He says, and you know what? Because I'm good, because I'm gracious, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you one. He says, you know what, in fact, I'm gonna show you. You're doubting who I am? You're doubting what I can do? Well, how about this? He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher, go home. He says, you're doubting who I am? You're doubting what I can do? You're doubting my authority? Well, here you go. I am the Son of Man, and I am commanding this dude to get up and to walk and to go home. And sure enough, immediately the man stood up and he took a stretcher and he went out in front of all of them. And they're all amazed. They're all just, wow, blown away. And some of them, they're glorifying God. They're saying, man, we've never seen anything like this. And Jesus Christ is performing this sign, not because that's the reason he's here, but because it's authenticating who he is and what he's doing. It's validating the Redeemer. He's casting a vision of restoration. He's casting a vision of this is what I want for you. Because some of us, man, we see this, we hear these stories, we're like, wow, that's great that that struggle was, was solved, that that sickness was healed. But why am I still sitting in the midst of just junk? Why am I still suffering? Why is my family member still suffering? Why is there still turmoil and destruction and death in my midst? Why do these issues not go away? And I'm with you. We're always gonna have those moments where I get a call a couple days ago and find out some friends of mine, good friends of mine, just had, they're excited about their first kid. They just had their first miscarriage. And man, when I hear that news, Man, there's nothing inside of me that says, oh, praise God. And I'll tell you, there shouldn't be anything inside of me that says, praise God for that sickness and that death and that destruction and that horrific thing that sin has brought into this world. Just because God can use evil for good does not make evil good. The Bible never calls suffering a blessing but it does call it an opportunity. James tells us it's an opportunity to persevere, to build endurance, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. So that when other trials may come, we learn to hold fast to Christ because we've been through this junk before. Or when trials come and hit a friend of ours, we can stand next to him and we can empathize because we've seen this junk before. Paul says it's an opportunity to see the strength of the Lord. He says, when I'm weak, God's strong. 
says, where I fail, the Lord succeeds. He says, I've got this thorn in my side that God won't take, and I don't know why he won't take it. I've been praying and praying and asking and asking for him to take it away, but he doesn't. He says, but you know what? I'm not gonna praise God for the thorn, but I'm gonna praise God for the opportunity that it provides to trust in him. I'm gonna praise God that he loves me despite my weakness, despite my failure, despite my doubts. So do we still pray that God would end suffering? That God would bring healing? Absolutely. The friends of the paralytic do just that. They take him to Christ so that he would be healed. Jesus wants that. He heals the man because it's part of the plan. But man, there's gonna be times where that healing doesn't happen in the time that we want it to occur. There's gonna be times where the events don't transpire in the way that we think they should transpire. And it's gonna be hard. It's not gonna be fun. But what we can know, what we can cling to is that God has told us that there is a purpose behind it. We don't always see it immediately, but it's there. And we can trust in that because Jesus of Nazareth told us as much. He says, you know who I am? He says, I'm the son of man. He says, I'm the one prophesied in Daniel 7 where Daniel is looking across time and space and he was watching in the night visions and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching and he went up to the ancient of days and he was escorted before him and to him was given ruling authority and honor and sovereignty and all peoples and all nations and all language groups were serving him and his authority was eternal and it will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. Jesus Christ says, that's who I am. I'm not the son of man, meaning that I'm the son of a man. I'm the son of man because I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. I'm the one who's been sent to you. I'm the promised one. I'm the one who's gonna have all authority, all honor, all sovereignty. So that's who I am. And I'm gonna heal this paralyzed man so that you can see and trust in what I'm claiming to do. To not just heal people physically, but to heal people spiritually, because that's the ultimate need. I mean, the truth is that we all struggle with that tension. Right? We, we, we all, I will always struggle to trust God in any given moment, in any given set of circumstances. We will struggle with that because we're still broken people. We've been redeemed, but, but not fully, right? We're still in this mortal broken shell. And so when things transpire, when events kind of culminate, when tragedy strikes, we're gonna, we're gonna struggle and we're gonna begin to doubt. And even though we might be amazed by that healing, even though we can look at stories and tales and we can maybe look back even in our own lives and see those healings or those moments or those miraculous events or that transpiring, that sovereignty at work, we could be out of our minds, literally. And here in Mark 2, the Greek is saying that they were out of their minds. They're existathi, existathi, right? Meaning literally they are out of their minds. That's how amazed they are. And yet as amazed as they were at the healing, many of them still doubted the healer. And it's the same with us. We can still find ourselves struggling to trust God. And many times the source of that struggle is not believing who Jesus is. The ultimate source is I'm beginning to, this chipped away. That faith is being chipped away. At it and it's, I'm forgetting that he's the Christ, right? I'm forgetting he's the Christos. I'm forgetting he's the chosen one. The one who's going to deliver us to eternal glory beyond this horrific world. I'm beginning to struggle with maybe feeling loved 
or feeling forgiven, feeling like God could really ever accept me or use me. Ultimately, because the, the source of that is, is I'm doubting what Jesus has done. Just like those scribes, just like those Pharisees, I'm beginning to doubt, man, does he really forgive me, man? Does he really have that authority? Can he really look past these issues, these struggles that I've had? I'm forgetting that Jesus Christ, I mean, he paid the debt. He absolved our shame. He's inviting us to new life. And that's what we have to come back to. And it's hard, right? It's easy to say, it's very difficult to do. And that's why we need community. That's why we need people in our lives that can keep us grounded, that can pull us back, that can hear our struggles, that can share a shoulder. And they're not just gonna sit there, hopefully they're not just gonna sit there and quote Romans 8, 28 to us, tell us, well, look, God's gonna work all things for the good. Those who love him, don't you worry. Like that's not helpful, it's not. We need to find those moments, we need to find those people and we need to just empathize. We need to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. We rejoice when the people are rejoicing but my gosh, we, we feel for them. We're there for them, we're presence. And when they don't know what they need, we don't try to just fill in the gap. We just stay and we wait until we can help. That's what Jesus Christ did. He says, you know what? Right now, you don't know what you need. But in my infinite wisdom, I'm gonna give you the ultimate solution. And so if we know people that are struggling, who are not believers, their need is the gospel. It's not to live a different way. It's not to behave in a different manner. It's not to say certain things. It's, it's, it's the faith. It's the belief behind that behavior. If we know a fellow believer who's struggling, who's dealing with these doubts, if we are believers who are struggling with these doubts, we need to come back to this ultimate truth of the gospel. It sounds simple, but it's true. That's why we as a church practice communion. That's why we have communion. To, to, to have a moment where we stop and we just reflect on what Jesus has done for us, who Jesus is to us. That's why this morning we're gonna do that. We're gonna have opportunity as we close, as we sing a couple more songs, there's gonna be communion available for those of us who are believers who wanna remember, man, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. You can come forward to the front. You can go to the back. You can take time to just reflect on what Jesus has accomplished for us, to remember and proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. He lived and died and rose for us. No matter what this life holds for us, we hold to him, right? And we put our faith in him. We can pray for that healing, absolutely, but our faith is not in the healing. Our faith is in the healer. We say, you know what? My hope is not lodged in this present restoration. I'm gonna pray for it, but my hope is not found in this present restoration. It's in that perfect restoration, in my future. It's in that day that will come when I can stand before God as someone who has been redeemed and reconciled and restored in the righteousness of Christ. That's what I look to. That's the day that I long for. That's the day that we proclaim as we take communion. So please join me in prayer as we thank God for this opportunity. God, we thank you that you have given us just this morning, God, this time to come together to reflect on what you've accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we just pray that we would be a people that continually come back to this truth, that we don't just reserve this for the occasional Sunday morning, but Lord, we would walk into our classes and our, our workplaces, into our houses, our apartments, our dorm rooms, and we would walk in as people who are centered on the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. If you would take a moment right now and just ask the Lord, God, draw to my mind, where is it that I'm faltering? Lord, where is it that I'm kind of losing sight of this truth that you are good, 
or that I am loved. Ask God to reveal that to you. But then ask him, God, be strong where I'm weak. Lord, succeed where I fail. Lord, let your spirit empower me to give me the faith that I need. Ask Lord to draw that failure to your mind, but then to just move you towards it, to move you through it, through the power of his spirit. Ask him those things right now.